one of our listeners. Legal discussion on Tip Today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mel on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors joins me now. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Fran. And interesting good, times. Interesting times indeed, John. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do, you, do you follow all of this, John? Have you an interest in it? I presume you have. I have an interest in history, funnily enough, mm. and I read, I recently read a book on Collins that was written, a most recent publication on Collins, and somebody gave me about, I don't know, about two years ago, a book by uh, David McCullough, is it McCullough? McCullough, um, yeah, so RT, yeah, yeah. Yeah, from RT, who has written a book about Dev. Mm. So I actually started to read the book on Dev there during the pandemic scenario, and um, I just think it's fascinating because when you read both of their stories, I mean, you really kind of come back to basics and say, you know, there really was very little between them other than the fact that Dev didn't want to stand over the treaty yeah. and Collins did. And then history then ensued. So really, I suppose, like everybody else, I, I, I think it's a very interesting development and I think it's about time. Um, I think the old, I mean, and I would be traditionally uh, Fianna Fáil without showing my colours. Mm. Uh, and I would have always voted Fianna Fáil on the basis that uh, my family had done it, etc., etc. And well, I, yeah. I would I would have been, a, and that would have been kind of grounded, funnily enough, on I would have been, which I think is really ironical because I would have been an anti Dev mm. and a pro Collins kind of history reader. Mm. And I, reading the recent book on Collins, you, you know, you kind of realise, of course, like everybody else, he was human and, you know, a lot of events that happened, etc., would have been, you know, in hindsight, mightn't have been what they appeared at the time and that. And likewise with Dev and the decision, etc. I'm still not convinced I'm a fan of Dev, but that's more on a personal level. I mean, I always remember reading a book on Parallel and written by that that's Englishman who wrote the book on, on uh, Parallel, but I can't think of mm. Very well, easily re- readable book. Uh, but at the end of the day, you often kind of come down to, to, to you know, do you get the personality of the individual? Uh, that, that's the point. That's why I would highly recommend to you the new the new book on, on the arms trial of 1970, because, you know, our, oh, our, yeah. our perception of that has been that, you know, Jack Lynch, the good guy, the yeah. benign yeah. leader who sort of saved yeah. us all from civil war. Yeah. And if yeah. you read that book, it's interesting how much he knew and yeah. you know, and, and yeah. you know, how rev- much was going on in the background? Abs- you know? Absolutely, and it's very interesting. But anyway, we yeah. we we digress as we always yeah. do, John. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have a query from a listener, John. It's in from Brendan. He's asking that if a neighbouring property was responsible for damage on your own property, example a fire, then would the neighbouring property's insurance pay out on that? It's interesting, isn't it? Yes, it would should depending. And again, like everything, it's like every answer. That, that I would give, I would always put it conditional and looking at the policy and making sure that the policy covers. But by and large, yeah, I mean, your 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 liability insurance on your house, if your house, if there's a fire in your house and caused damage to your adjoining property, most policies would cover that situation. But again, you need to look at the policy. But I mean, it's covered, it's covered by law insofar as, you know, as a matter of liability, the person would be responsible if damage is caused to an adjoining property as a result of fire, you know. But your neighbour would have to accept liability, would would he or she? 
Well, if it goes to the insurance company, it'll be down to whether the insurance... I mean, as you know, I mean, the scenario invariably with insurance companies is that, you know, the, in fact, it's the neighbour, if you like, who is the legal person who is responsible for uh, defending the claim. But in reality, the insurance company would defend the claim. So, I mean, in that scenario, the insurance company, the policy covers the situation. They usually put in a loss adjuster who will look at the damage that's done and deal more with the detail of the cost involved and what they have to pay out. But, yeah. Mm. The the whole business of neighbours and that relationship with somebody Mm. who who is living right right beside you, it it can be fraught at times. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it gives rise to all sorts of things. But, I mean, it's funny because, you know, when you're talking about the neighbour beside you, I mean, you've got the overhanging tree, you've got the barking dog, you've got the party wall, you've got the noise from the record player. God, I'm showing my age anyway. Whatever the hell, the DVD player, even that might be showing my age. But anyway, somebody watching Netflix (laughs) or something very loud late at night. So you've got all those scenarios. And then you've got the whole area of nuisance and the whole, which we've talked about on occasion, you know, you know, where's the balance between, uh, you know, tolerating certain things because people need to live and then where where is the boundary between that and something that is a nuisance and actionable at law and that, I mean, that, that's really because it's the food and fodder for quite an awful lot of uh, litigation, number one, but and again, you know, the courts kind of barely come down on the basis of saying, you know, what would be a reasonable standard that you might expect and if it's above that standard if you know what I mean then our tolerance level is supposed more to, when you're done with this type of situation but yeah uh, and funny you know it's interesting it's always interesting to me because one of the things that I've often said to you is that if people actually agreed things in writing it would make for a much easier life yeah. insofar as uh, somebody approached me there recently, a client, uh, to say that they were doing something uh, on a boundary between you know themselves and the neighbour and everything was hunky-dory, no problem at all. But they were just talking to the neighbour and they said, well, look, you know, would it be a good idea to try and formalise this? And he got on to me and I said, it would be an excellent idea because from now on, in the event of somebody at some future date going, well, actually, you move that wall. And when you look at the map on my property, the map on my property shows the wall there, whereas, in fact, it's moved to there. So, therefore, I want you to move it back. And, you know, you prevent a lot of things. And, you know, we, we were talking, I heard you talking about the Trinity. Uh, you're calling the new government Trinity now at this stage. But we don't know how blessed they are. But <laughs> the... the the, the, the three wise men and the trinity but when you're looking at a situation uh, any situation I've often said that people should do you know you should do a will you should do an enduring power attorney and you should do an agreement to reflect your actual situation so if you're in a scenario that you're living with somebody uh, in that situation and or if you're in a circumstance where you're sharing an asset with somebody, I mean, the easiest way to prevent a row, sorry, I kind of reframe that, the best way to try and prevent a row, mm. a row because try is there. I mean, again, uh, I can hear a little fella sitting on my shoulder here going, well, if you get lawyers involved in this, you're probably going to have rows anyway. But... <clears throat> The thing about that, I suppose, is just make sure you get the guy who's, who's 
the best able to make the row. But the, the scenario is that if you put it in writing, you have some chance. If you don't put it in writing, you have very little chance. And you broaden the scope for argument uh, where you don't have an agreement. So the, you should, you should, and I, I, I say it, you should look to organising your affairs in a way that tries to prevent as best you can any subsequent difficulties. So, like what we're what we what we were going to talk about this morning was the whole area of you know administering somebody's estate after they pass mm. on. And the the thing about that is that if people uh, actually sat down and said to themselves, "Okay, right." There's a couple of certainties in life, and one of them is the fact that you're not going to be here indefinitely. And if that is one of the certainties in life, well, then under those circumstances, you you should plan for it. And if you do plan for it, you should be looking at a situation where you can reduce it as best you can any difficulties that might arise. So, you know, if you think of all the cases that go through the courts dealing with situations where people haven't properly provided for uh, a child, let's say, or haven't provided for somebody that they promised something to and didn't, if you like, for one reason or another. And often the other reason is that they just didn't get around to it uh, because there is this kind of, you know, and I know we've said it quite quite a lot over the years, there is this reluctance by all of us, and I include myself in that, to sit down and actually make a will of or course. revise a will or update a will. Mm. So you often get situations where there are rows that end up in a huge amount of aggravation. And, I mean, there is nothing more effective than a badly made or a no-will situation to open old wounds in in a family situation. And the, the, the thing about that is that, you know, you often say to yourself, you know, it brings me in mind of the client that came in to me when I was only a, a young fella as in starting off in this business of law and they came in and they said to me look I want to make a will but I don't want I don't want to leave anything to any of my kids because they're your know, man Johnny is this and Mary is that and whatever and uh, give them money at all they blow the whole damn thing and I remember thinking this was me just straight out of law school I had read about things like trusts and I had read about all sorts of things mm. you could do with wills, and but you're, this poor dude, literally, it it was on the on on the basis of a couple of bob that they had in an account. And I remember at the time, I have to put my hand in my heart and say that I didn't think of the most obvious things that they could have done, which is they could have nominated on their they could have put the money into a credit union account, mm. and they could nominate it, nominated somebody to get the benefit of that account, and that would have taken it out of the will scenario would have taken it out of the conflict scenario and you know and again you know a lot of this you know people often ask the other question oh, how much does it cost to make mm. a will well I mean the reality of it is how much are you, how much are you prepared to pay for making sure that you get it right I mean you know and at the end of the day there's no shortcut to you you have to sit down and look at it you have to and, and if you get it off. wrong John of course it can cost a fortune oh yeah yeah. If you get it wrong, it costs a fortune. I mean, the reality is as well, you know, I mean, people, the other area that's continually an area of complaint by people. And funny, it's it's something that I've kind of, <clears throat> a kind of a New Year's resolution next year kind of thing, because I have too many this year. But I have, <clears throat> I've, I've often thought to myself, 
and I saw the probate office. The probate office, just uh, so that I'm not losing you on it, I'm sure you know what it is anyway, but the probate office is the official kind of court-appointed uh, office that deals with all the paperwork when you're dealing with an uh, estate where somebody dies. So when you have a will, you have to prove the will if you have to do anything with the will, if you have to convert the will or the instructions under the will and that. You have to take out a, a kind of legal piece of paper called a grant of probate or if we want to get more technical it could be letters of administration or whatever. But you have to take out this legal document. And this legal document is issued by the probate office. And once you get that in your hand, you can do and distribute the estate right. and deal but, with but that. But not until that is, it happens. Not until to. that. Yeah. But there's so much that you can do now to make sure, to a certain extent, that you reduce the amount of uh, paperwork, number one, cost, time, delay, and action that needs to be taken. In in a, in a situation where you pass on and you leave the leave the job to somebody else to do it, so you know, like if you're dealing with, I mean, a, a, a kind of standard one is when you're dealing with the family home. Um, and again, I remember years and years ago when I came back to town. I remember the first client I had. I have to say, it was my parents and uh, my dad, and I remember looking at his paperwork for his house and I said, Gee, Dad, yeah, this isn't in Mum's name, you haven't you haven't and he looked at me and said, My dear man, you, that wasn't something you did, you know. And she wasn't uh, yeah, at yeah. that stage it was it was it, and now it would be a total unusual thing not to put a house into show names. But I mean the whole scenario around putting a house into joint names, putting an account into joint names, and the whole situation where you have a pension and you have benefits on a pension, the whole scenario where you have insurance, and the other scenario where you're living with somebody, cohabiting with somebody, and where the house is owned jointly, and what happens if the other party dies, and the whole implications of that, the tax implications of it, and the practical implications of it. And again, you know, going back mm-hmm. to your your Blessed Trinity, did you call the Coalition of Blessed Trinity or something like that? I did. Uh, yeah, okay, well I'm calling wills during powers of trinities and cohabitation agreements, they're my Blessed Trinity. But if you dealt with those, you'd certainly... Um, you know, you'd improve the chances of minimising the amount of um, difficulty that arises. And again, I mean, I would say to people, I do understand how difficult it is to actually do this kind of thing. But, and I don't know whether it's just literally the physical going in, doing the instructions, coming back, and the amount of people that don't come back to sign the will, you know, because... Again, it goes onto the back burner because it's not immediately important to you. There's an interesting question here, John, and and I'm sort of going to add to it a little bit myself, but it it Mm. says, how how long after will is read do you have to contest it? And I'm just wondering about that question in light of how long it takes to get probate. Does probate Mm. come into the contesting of a will? It does. It does indeed, yeah, because usually, yeah, there are certain, there are a number of time limits that are involved, and uh, I'm not, I'm going to just do a real good old lawyer's kind of shimmy here and say I'm not going to tie myself to a particular, but usually it's two years from the date of the issue of the grant, but sometimes it can be six months, so it depends on the circumstances under which you're going to, so if you contest the will, the will, until the 
if you go about contesting a will, it depends on whether you're contesting the will itself and the validity of the will. So in other words, are you saying this will was done under undue influence? Are you saying that the person didn't have the capacity to make the will? Or are you making a claim based on the fact that you were you weren't properly looked after under the will? Uh, you know, or are you making a claim that as a child you weren't properly looked after under the will? Or are you making a claim that you had a certain expectation that wasn't reflected in the will? Or are you making the claim, you know, so you know, there's there's quite a number of scenarios that arise that you need to kind of, so mm. that's my little shimmy sidestep on that. But if the, if the, the probate office decides this will is legitimate and fine and grand, does somebody still have a case? The probate office will simply look at the will on the on the face of it and say, yes, this will complies with the technical requirements of a will. So what you've got to, not what you've got to, but what one has to kind of bear in mind is that the probate office is very like the property registration authority. They're a public office and their function is purely documentary. So in other words, their function is just to check check the paperwork and tick the boxes. Oh, okay. And I don't I don't mean that in a literal sense, but you know what I mean? If there is a, even a shred of issue around a will or around how the will was done or around the paperwork where you lodge, I mean quite an amount of time is spent only I was yeah, I was going back to my New Year's resolution there, which is to sit down and workflow probate. In other words, what I mean by that is I have a system within the office. There's two things I'm, I'm just going to say, just mm. to come back on. Um, there is, under our, the, the benefits of our new kind of lockdown scenarios, we've spent a lot of time looking at our systems. And one of our system, systems enables us to automate, to an extent, the amount of, procedure requirements that you have to meet when you're doing any particular thing that sounds really kind of vague. But what I mean by that is that when you look at probate or a contract mm. or a cohabitation agreement or, you know, anything like that or issuing any paperwork, there's a certain amount of rules that you have to comply with. So when you have a system that enables you to input those rules, you can put it in what we call a workflow. I would really dearly like to put in a workflow on probate because I think uh, a lot of the time that people talk about that it takes to do a probate can literally be because of the boxes not being ticked because of certain, uh, you know, what you would call technical irregularities. Oh, I thought it was just because there's a backlog. I thought that that's what, because it can be up to six months of a delay, can't it? Yeah, but but often the backlog, to be fair to the people who are dealing with it, and they have flagged this recently. Uh, often the reason for the backlog is that there are just fairly straightforward mistakes, number one, and number two, there are inconsistencies that aren't earned out in the paperwork. So basically because, and again, this is something to to kind of, that takes a while as a lawyer, you send, kind of go on, why are they sending back these documents and why don't they just correct them or whatever? Mm. And the answer is that's not their job, that's not their function, but they're there to check to see that everything has been, you yes. know, done correctly and that's simply their function. So if there is a dispute, 
the dispute will go into the courts. It won't be dealt with. The All right. Okay. As usual, the, the moment you mention yeah. wills and probate, John, we're inundated with stuff coming in here, and uh, uh, more than any other subject we discuss. But Anne has an interesting one. She says, "Could you ask John uh, if if you're making a will and you have squatters' rights on a property, should you include that property in the will?" There's one for you now, John. Yes. <laughs> Just yes. Yes. <laughs> right. What I mean, what I mean by that is, well, as you know, as you know, there's never a simple yes. <laughs> what I'm saying is that if you consider that you have squatters' right to a property, then you are effectively saying that you own the property. So if you're saying you own the property, then it should be included in the assets that you're proposing to dispose of. Of course, I would say that if you have squatters' rights or if somebody has squatters' rights to the property, what they should do. And this is funny enough, this is one of my, my little pet pet hobbies at the moment, the whole area of squatters' rights and adverse possession and mm. rights away and all that kind of thing. But uh, it, it, really, it really is down to the fact that if you do have squatters' rights on properties, it's back to the point that I'm making, you should tidy everything up. So if you do have squatters' rights, you should make an application. Yeah, I didn't realise that squatters' rights would give you propriety. Like. Oh yeah, oh absolutely. I mean, that's the problem. Um, if you're a, a landowner or what we call a paper-based owner of property. So if you're a paper-based owner, what I mean by that is that if I check, if you, if you check my title, you'll see that I'm I'm named as the person who owns the property. But that that in itself doesn't isn't uh, completed. Sorry, that's not the end of the matter, if you know what I mean. If somebody comes in and occupies that property adversely for a period of time under the new legislation it could be 12 years but it used to be 20 years or depending on the state property it could be 30 years or if it's four short it could be 60 years but anyway the, 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 the point is that over a period of time you will acquire a title to it now the really interesting uh, element to adverse possession of course is and I probably won't pronounce this correctly I get divorced about a bit of it right anyway animus which is your mind mm-hmm. possessendi possession so it's the intention to possess and that's where the crux of adverse possession comes in because mm-hmm. you must prove that you had the intention to possess the property and then the second part of it putting it as its simplest is that if the paper title owner if you know what I mean the person that's on the title legally if that person does anything at all over the period that you're arguing that you acquired your title if they do anything at all that is a, a reflection of ownership, well, then uh, that will negative the adverse possession. But the last thing, or one of the things I was going to say to you about the, the COVID-19 scenario, which I think is fascinating, I obviously do the radio on Tuesdays, as you know, and then I do a bit of work after that on mm. doing blogs and things. But... Um, since COVID-19, the, on a Thursday, I spent most of my time on web conferences, and I find them fascinating insofar as I now am in a situation where, which I've often thought should have been the case, that uh, but people wouldn't have been as open to it uh, a year ago or two years ago as they are now. So a client will put in a query. So if any of your listeners want to put in, send me an email, with a query on it, for example, I can then go off for a search the query, go back to the client and say, look, okay, we'll do a web conference on this. We'll have a chat about it, make sure I've got it right. I'll have looked at the law in the meantime. 
and I'll give you an answer to it. Now, uh, by the way, I won't be doing it for free, but I mm. will do an answer. I will give you an answer. So I've been doing these consultations with clients that I find, and I think clients have also said they find them hugely uh, effective because you suddenly condense everything into uh, one consultation. The client doesn't have to leave their home or their office. Mm. But because they give you the information in advance, you can you do your homework. Topic. Yeah. You do you do your homework. So you've done your homework in advance by and large. You come on to the client, you say, Am I do I understand this correctly? You know, is there anything else that I that I've missed that you'd like to add? Okay, fine, I've looked at the law. This is what I think the situ- situation is. And 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 then we go on to say, Well, okay, what can we do about this? So you take your adverse possessor scenario or adverse possession scenario, client sends you all the details. You look up the law. If there's anything unusual in the law, I mean, there was, you know, you know, your 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 question, for example, this morning on the insurance on the, you know, the fire insurance scenario from the I mean, neighbour, yeah, yeah. If I got that question in, I I pull, I'd get the office to pull me a standard policy, uh, household policy. I'd have I'd have looked at it in advance. Mm. Uh, I'd have a look at the law on it. Then I look at the email. Then I talk to the client, and away you go. And the beauty of it then is that um, funny because I think um, where Linda uh, said that there was somebody asked another question about legal tender there, mm. which we might get to uh, some other stage. But the other issue, of course, is that it, it's the client pays for the consultation in advance. That's all done online. And the consultation is done online. Then you follow through with the letter of advices, and uh, it's really neat. And so it's, very, a, it's a whole new way of, of dealing yeah, with the law. It's, it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, which means I could I could be in the south of France too. <laughs> <laughs> you dream on now, John. You dream on. Listen, really good to talk to you today, John. Thanks very much today. Thank you. Bye bye, you know. That's our own John Lynch there, of Lynch Solicitors in Clonmel and. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Subaru dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie